The following program was made possible by Ward's lawyers. Find us at wardlegal.ca. Thanks for finding and listening to us. My name is Denny Grignot, and this is the show I host. It's about us for us. Today, a former pro and still solid rec league defenseman, John Bukaboom, offers some wisdom into why the coach of my team, the Habs, is defying the odds for now. Businesses don't have to keep the vaccine passport anymore, but they can. We'll hear how one local theater came to its decision. Restaurants are bracing themselves for stricter rules when it comes to single-use plastic. But for one Lindsay Eatery, that change started long ago. We'll hear how and why Smitty's did it. And... If the government is suggesting it is in the best interests of a child to be vaccinated, generally speaking, the courts would defer to that. Lawyer Ryan O'Neill returns to discuss a very timely topic and impart some wards of wisdom. This is the Advocate Podcast, stories from Kawartha Lakes. It wasn't every business and public space ringing the bells of joy when the province proclaimed an end to the vaccine passport. Some were approaching the lifting of this mandate with not necessarily disapproval, but certainly caution. The Ontario government is allowing businesses the option to continue requiring the passport for its customers, or in the case of the Flato Academy Theatre, its patrons. Before it decided to lift or to keep the vaccine passport, the theatre sought input from patrons via a survey. The decision? The theatre has dropped the Vax Pass. I met with theatre manager Craig Metcalf at the theatre to discuss the process that led to its decision. We learned that there was a slight majority of people who wanted, who were comfortable with uh, not having the vaccine passport. And although um, it wasn't, uh, you know, a substantial majority, it was a majority, and you know, somewhere between 60 and 70 percent said that was fine. Uh, we didn't have a target in mind, but wanted to see clearly what people thought. So we actually had an 11% response rate. So that was a good number for us to work with. I actually expected it to be higher, that more people in favor of dropping the mandate and getting on with life. I know COVID doesn't care about our feelings, um, but we all are, are in a, you know, we're tired, we're worn out, and that's everybody, and we want to just feel a little bit normal again. And as I said, this is the advice from the province and we're following it. Initially, the board was was happy to keep the vaccine mandate in place. They felt that that was the safest way to proceed. Then we started discussing, well, maybe there's a balance. Maybe we keep it in place for another month or two, um, see what happens, and uh, then go with the guidance. In the end, we felt that we've been following the guidance since the beginning. We're going to continue to do that. It's probably in the best interest of the theatre as a business and still safe enough for the patrons. What would you tell those patrons, the vaccinated ones, that that percentage of, you know, the 30 or 40 percent who went, eh, I'm a little uncomfortable with this. What would you tell those people now who are maybe a little bit hesitant to come in and, and be in a theatre with potentially other people who are not vaccinated? What would you say to reassure them? Well, I would understand their hesitance to attend 
a show and although we'd love to see them if they don't feel comfortable here that's perfectly fine with us someday they will and um, the mask mandate is still in effect so people will be masked in 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 the building so that's another layer of uh, of security for those patrons who are a little bit hesitant um, and we still have all of our cleaning protocols in in place hand sanitizer throughout the building extra masks on hand for those who don't have them we're taking every possible step we can to make people feel safe and comfortable it is a different uh, in a fixed seat uh, environment uh, that, that people aren't dancing singing along as much as they'd like to so maybe someday but uh, one day at a time we're in the theater now and it's obviously empty seats what do you think you'll uh you'll feel as those doors behind you swing open and people can finally come in with masks or without and they're piling in for that next big show. Um, apprehensively excited. Uh, uh, it, we, again, we don't want to be the cause of any, uh, any, any outbreak. We, don't, uh, we want people to be safe. It really comes down to a business decision for us. And, you know, we followed the guidance from the beginning. We're following the guidance again. So that was basically the end of the argument at, at the board. It was a, uh, shall we say, a lively discussion, um, lots of um, options, lots of opinions. But the bottom line is this is what the province is telling us is okay now. And uh, our volunteers are still vaxxed. Staff are still subject to that, those those conditions weren't dropped, but now we don't have to check vaccine passports at the door, so that's the way that uh, we're proceeding. This is a place of uh, of enjoyment, of uh, of celebration, uh, camaraderie, and this place is meant to be full and warm, and with people ex excited and artists who uh, are amazing with their own stories to tell in a community that wants to hear them. That's what this place is for. That's, that's the bottom line for us. Craig Metcalf is general manager of the Flato Academy Theatre in Lindsay. Our show is brought to you by Ward's Lawyers. If you're looking for a lawyer, Chris Award and the team of lawyers at Ward's can meet those needs. Find out how they can help you at wardlegal.ca. Our show is part of the media offerings of The Advocate magazine, and we are 100% local media. You can still find our March edition throughout Kawartha Lakes, but publisher Roderick Benz is already hard at work on our April issue. I had never met anyone quite like Ivory Conover before. She breathes fire. She's biracial, bisexual, and in an open marriage. She's an actor a burlesque dancer, an archer, an equine enthusiast, an event planner, and she skydives only reluctantly. Who then better to learn more about for a brand new column launching in The Advocate called Lunch With. Each month, I'll dine with an interesting person from Kawartha Lakes, like Woodville's Ivory Conover, and we'll talk about anything that comes to mind and nothing will be off the record. That's the deal before we agree to meet. Look for my first lunch with Colm in the April edition of The Advocate. Back to school this time around has been no small challenge for parents in this back and forth pandemic, but it can be especially difficult for parents who are separated and who might not share the same views on how 
their kids should be back in the classroom. It's one thing for co-parents to find common ground on, you know, what a child should pack in their lunch or what extracurriculars they should be allowed to take. But this pandemic and how it's evolved presents new choices. A good example in the most recent return to school, children as young as five can now be vaccinated. But for parents sharing custody, who gets to decide? We'll address this question with... Words of wisdom. Words of wisdom. More than just words of wisdom, it's words of wisdom. Across from me, way across from me in the boardroom here at Ward's Lawyers is Ryan O'Neill. He is a lawyer who specializes in family law. You'll remember my conversation with Ryan back in the spring of 2020 about child custody during a pandemic. And that was long before vaccines were a reality. Well, they are a reality now. Ryan, thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us once again. Well, thanks for having me, Danny. Before we get into the issue of vaccines and kids, since we've last spoken, what has been the biggest change or the biggest evolution when it comes to parents sharing custody and having to you know, have kids go back and forth? What have you seen? What's the biggest change? Well, I think as, as we're all aware, people have very strong feelings or potentially have very strong feelings around vaccination, uh, either for or against. As with any other issue in raising children, if there's strong feelings on either side, uh, the potential for conflict is, is there. It takes tremendously mature people to be able to work through that. And unfortunately, you know, it just doesn't always happen. And then the courts are called on to decide these things. Frankly, you know, for lawyers in the courts, we're not medical experts. And the difficulty in providing advice to people if you have no expertise in that area is you can't provide advice. You're just interpreting the law, I guess. And, and I guess that's what I'm getting at is this is a law that seems to be so fluid that seems, seems to be changing. So what's that like for you to have to interpret that and tell parent A and parent B, this is how this should shape up? Well, very difficult, Danny, because it becomes so fact specific. It's difficult to advise people as to how this would ultimately be resolved by a court because it's difficult to know the exact facts that are going to come out in court. The courts are going to look at the specific facts. I'll give you an example. Please. Let's say we have a home whereby the child is also residing with maternal grandparents. Maternal grandparents are at risk given their age or health condition. So in, in my example, mother would like the children to be vaccinated. Father is opposed to the vaccination. Mother brings her application in court. The court looks at all of these factors. They're going to decide the matter in what is in the best interest of the child, both emotionally and physically. Grandparents who are part of the home are at risk. Perhaps, you know, that would trump and mom would win the day on those facts. There are no extraneous factors there. It's simply, Mom wants vaccination, Dad doesn't want vaccination. And they're bouncing between the two homes and there's nothing, uh, there's nothing out of the ordinary with each household. Correct. Generally speaking though, Denny, um, the courts would err on the side of caution. The side of caution being the child gets vaccinated. The judges are recognizing they're not experts when it comes to health-related matters. What they're attempting to do is take their direction from the government 
if the government is suggesting it is in the best interests of a child, most children, to be vaccinated either at age 5 or at age 12, generally speaking, the courts would defer to that. You mentioned a couple times here, Ryan, the what is the best for the emotional state of the child. So let me ask you, uh, and I recognize often we're talking about minors here, but how much weight, if any, does the child have in any of these decisions? Yeah, it's a great question and, and, a, and a very fair one. Generally, more weight is placed upon that child's opinion as the child gets older. As a general rule of thumb, most courts don't entertain views and preferences of a child if they're certainly below 10. Um, a lot of times you'll hear 12, you know, but again, it's so fact-specific. There are some 12-year-olds that are tremendously emotionally developed and intellectually and psychologically developed. There are others that aren't. So it's almost on a per-case basis, literally. It is. It is, and it depends on child to child. Generally speaking, though, it's only one factor, and generally speaking, it won't carry the day. All right, how about this? And this has happened to you. How about one parent wants the child attending school in class, the other one doesn't? Um, and, you know, we've read of cases where one parent wants the child vaccinated but not attending school in class while the other parent's position is the complete opposite. Again, Denny, so fact-specific, but generally there is case law out there on this, um, lots of it actually, and, and again, the, the courts took the approach. A, if the school boards deem it appropriate for the children to be in class, the court will then extrapolate from that and say, you know, emotionally and physically and socially, most of the experts agree that it's beneficial for a child to be in attendance so at you school. Can, so you can defer to the school board as an expert as well. A judge's job is to remove their personal feelings and biases as much as possible from their decision. What kind of caveats or concessions have you seen co-parents make or be you know forced into making i'm thinking of okay our child can attend class but can't participate in extracurriculars of any kind if they're not vaccinated or something of that ilk i have seen that um, i.e a parent wanted a child to attend school and attend hockey um, the other parent thought that hockey was a bit of a stretch at this time although was fully supportive of the child attending school uh, to their credit, the parent that wanted the hockey agreed to defer that, you know, and, and frankly made that concession as, as a means of just reaching a resolution, avoiding, you know, further conflict, which potentially could lead to litigation. Because frankly, the only way to resolve the conflict, if the parties can't do it, is to have a third party decide it, i.e. litigation. Hmm. Ryan, all these things you've, you've described are what parents who are in a, a very comfortable relationship are probably dealing with as well. But the dynamics are different. So what, would you, what advice would you give to the separated parent when they're negotiating this and going into arbitration and, and trying to negotiate these concessions? What advice would you give them? Always, always encourage people, please take a reasonable position. You have to remember this is just one event in a series of events that are going to occur throughout your child's life. Whether you like it or not, you know, you're going to have to deal with that other parent. I have four children. In my mind, nothing would be worse than having to attend at my child's 
wedding and you know, it causing my child tremendous angst because my parents simply cannot agree on anything about anything. I view it as an opportunity for separated couples to attempt to find some common ground. Ryan O'Neill is a lawyer with Ward's Lawyers specializing in family law. You can find him at wardlegal.ca. A young woman and excellent singer-songwriter and a passionate environmentalist. We look forward to speaking with in the future episode. From right here in Kawartha Lakes, this is Shannon Roselle with a song called Red Wine Bride. Green glass bottle calls to be free It says, hey baby, put your mouth around me Bow back when I 
Shannon Roselle with Red Wine Bride. Look for a new album from the Quarth Lake singer-songwriter in the coming months. And we look forward to speaking with her real soon in an upcoming episode of the Advocate Podcast. Instead of his, I am a true devoted wife. Earlier this year, the federal government outlined its plan to ban single-use plastics such as bags, cutlery, and straws. This will no doubt have a big impact in the restaurant industry, especially those whose business model largely depended on takeout, which really means pretty much every restaurant at some point during the past two years. Some restaurants will fare better than others since they implemented their own ban long before there was even talk of a solid plan by government leaders to do so. One such restaurant, Smitty's in Lindsay, which has been working towards a no-non-reusable plastic edict for a few years now. Shelly Hardacre is the owner of Smitty's. She joins me now. Shelly, what was your reaction when you learned of the federal government's intention to ban these single-use plastics by the end of 2022? I was thrilled, absolutely thrilled. My daughter and I had started um, avidly recycling absolutely everything and being very, very, very careful about what we bought just from a home perspective, uh, from a home base. And then moving forward, when I bought the restaurant, I made some pretty fast changes here for the very same reason, because at the end of a week, five large garbage bags full of little milkettes and creamettes, you know, straws that customers didn't use, things of that nature, um, I I couldn't stand it. It drove me crazy. So when I heard that news from both personal and business perspective, I was thrilled. I can hear the disgust in your voice when you describe those little cream <laughs> containers and so on. Well, what, what was at what point did you realize in carrying those bags out to the to the dumpster? When did that penny drop, as it were, when when you thought, okay, this has to stop? You know, I was never a fan of them in the beginning ever. When I was younger, you'd go into a restaurant and they would give you a little, you know, a little metal container, a little milker container. And that's what was on your table. Um, you know, health standards change and everything has to be sealed and covered and it can't be exposed to air and, and so on and so forth. But even back then, everything that came to the table that I knew was going in the garbage, I didn't like the taste of the milk or cream coming out of them to begin with. So for me, yeah, it's always been a thing that I just couldn't get past. And knowing that it was not being disposed of properly and just literally in a mound of a garbage heap is just it's always bothered me, always bothered me. I mean, I'm not, I, I don't want to call, my daughter's an eco-warrior, and I'm her backup. Kind of been going for about 30 years for me. <laughs> okay, well, tell me about the practice, how you implemented it at, at the restaurant. Well, when we first started, well, actually, to be honest with you, the first thing that went was the milk and the creamers. And I have um, these little, they're like old-fashioned, the milk bottles that used to be delivered to you at home. Very similar, but in much smaller, much smaller scale. My staff was just so mad at me because, of course, you can only, you know, you can't top them up. They need to be dumped and rewiped and so on and so forth. But within the first, you know, the first two weeks or so, customers loved them. It brought back an era that, that most of my customers remember. A pain in the butt for my staff. But to me, I saved on garbage bags and I saved on, you know, I saved the planet a little bit at a time. And to be honest with you, we had way less waste. I have a lot of people that come in here specifically because we're eco-friendly. Instead of giving people, you know, when you go into some restaurants and you have those little plastic ramekins that they toss in the garbage that comes with your dipping sauces or whatever, I went, I went to the metal ones. As much as they do get stolen, that was my next purchase. I don't care. 
for the five or ten that get stolen a year, my straws are biodegradable in 172 days. Even our paper towel, it's non-bleached paper towel because it has to go in the garbage, but it's non-bleached and, and compostable. When did your staff finally start to buy in? When they, when they realized it was the right thing to do. Honestly, it was a couple of weeks and they stopped grumbling. <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing you're pretty convincing too. You give me that impression that you can, you can, you can make the pitch quite strong. Well, at the end of the day, if they see me doing it, which they see me doing it quite all, you know, quite often, um, it's really not a big deal once you get into the habit. And they didn't grumble long. They're, my staff is my staff is actually very good, even to the things like don't print a receipt unless you absolutely need to print a receipt. Uh, styrofoam is, of course, awful. It was one of the first things identified as awful. Um, and there's all kinds of substitutes. They are more expensive. I'm not going to lie. I noticed most recently, and probably this is in preparation for it, but our main supplier, Cisco, um, when I go on their website to do my ordering, everything is pretty much an eco and earth choice now. So it is easier to, to adapt to this now then? Oh, absolutely. What advice would you offer to those restaurants that will have to adopt this by the end of the year the, the places that won't be able to give hand out like plastic forks and knives and, and styrofoam containers um their best bet is to get various sizes of takeout containers so they're not giving the large container for one piece of whatever left offering your customers um the toast bags for for whatever's left instead of a full container but they need to start doing it now they really do need to start doing it now because doing it all at once financially it's, it's, it can be detrimental, especially coming out of this, you know, the situation that we're in now with the pandemic. Everyone's hurting for, you know, hurting for money and uh, especially restaurants. So doing whatever they can in small stages now before the end of the year, it's going to serve them well. You know, a box of takeout cutlery that is environmentally friendly, it doesn't have to have the salt and pepper packs in it. They can buy in bulk, share with another restaurant. You know, if you've got a restaurant close to you and, and they're, they're also in the midst of doing it, share with another restaurant. You mean Buy sharing flour. like things like salt and peppers and the condiments and things like that? Or? Condiments, even takeout containers. Buy them in bulk directly from the company. You'll save money instead of buying them from, from whoever you order your large, you know, your, your, your food purveyor. For instance, if I was a one-of, I'd probably call, you know, call the people in the little one-of down the road and say, listen, I don't really need 10,000 of these. But if you want to split it with me, we both save money in the long run, and we're doing what we have to do, which is, you know, single-use plastics are out the window. So I had the printers here in town with vegan ink and completely 100% biodegradable paper made our large menus, and that's menu now that's being used across the country. You know, we try our best, and, and that's all you can really do in this day and age, and educate the next generation. <laughs> Shelley Hardacre is the owner of Smitty's Restaurant in Lindsay. I chose to come back to the city of Cortha Lakes. I was born and raised in the area. So I know the people and the businesses that are here and I wanted to be able to support them locally. My family, my friends are in the area. I had roots growing up here and then I both as a student and then now professionally. So I wanted to be in a community that I knew well. And I think it's important for small towns to have people who know the area well. For small towns, we're heavy on the support, we're community driven, so you know, you know the people that you're meeting in the grocery store or that you're seeing in the small town, so that was important to me and I think it's important to a lot of the clients that we service as well. 
My name is Brogan Dean, and I grew up in the city of Corth Lakes, and I am with Ward's Lawyers. If you're a regular listener to this show, which you can subscribe to for free on your favorite platform like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Podbean, and via lindsayadvocate.ca, if you're a regular listener, you know that I am a loyal fan of Les Canadiens de Montréal. And uh, not a lot to rejoice in lately with my hapless habs, but there is this. The team, my team, recently hired a coach who seems to have lit a fire under the habs especially its diminutive star-in-waiting, Cole Caulfield, who floundered under the previous coach. In the past 20 games or so, the Canadians have won much more than they've lost, arguably, likely, because of Martin Saint-Louis, who, before heading behind the Habs bench, had zero experience coaching at that pro level. Okay, so, so what gives? How is it that this Hall of Famer is doing this with no real experience in this role? I could prognosticate with some of my fellow old-timer hockey colleagues, or 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 I could seek out the insight of someone who has played pro hockey for about a half dozen teams in North America. I met with John Bukaboom at his Affinity Group Realty office in Lindsay. Well, he'd have some assistant coaches, and uh, they'd have systems and practice set up for them already, and they drills in the regular season. It's all about skating and passing and shooting. And working inside on the video, showing how they want to perform on the power play and on the penalty kill. What's your experience in those coaches, the ones who really work the X's and O's versus just the the, the positive talk and the encouragement or the, or, or the very hard talk? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a good question. Um, when I was in Peterborough, we had Gary Green and Mike Keenan. Hard-nosed coaches, ex-nosed guys, and very disciplinary coaches. He didn't like any of his players. We didn't like him. But after hockey, I got to know him better, and I like him. He likes me now, and I like him. But when he's coaching, that's just the way he did it. He wanted you mad at him. He got. He wanted to get the best out of you. So that, and he get under your skin. Sometimes it's too bad. Like he was really bad sometimes. And Dick Todd was there helping him. Another guy's trying to cool him off a little bit. Go to the other side of the coin, uh, not the best coach I ever had, but my favorite coach was a guy named Bill Deneen. And I played with him in Adirondack in the American League. Um, we had the same practice every day, all year long. Never changed. So you liked him as a person, but as a coach, not so much. It was easy for us, but it didn't matter. He just wanted to skate and pass and shoot and drills, and that's the way he he played in the 50s and the 60s and his kids are all playing like my age I played against all his kids and then he was coaching me but he was not an ex and old guy he is why well, he's a, an old-time hockey guy and we hung out with him he's like fun guy to hang out with too I consider him a good friend actually when you see Marquis St. Louis then and what he's doing and, and we're, we're hearing a lot of is just how he's talking to these players especially the Cole Caulfield who was really doing nothing under the previous coach and Ducharme and, and the scuttlebutt is that that he's really just kind of motivating him and, and talking to him yeah. can you draw on those experiences well he's taking the pressure off the players he's putting it on himself uh, he just wants them to go out there and perform. But, um, and they're like a skating team, they're a young team, and he just wants them 
you know, to enjoy the experience. As a guy who's played pro then, how important is that level of enjoy the game and maybe lose, but you're still enjoying the game versus, you know, the, the Mike Keenans who are going to scream at you and, and throw chairs up against the wall. What's it like to be the player there? Uh, another good question because um, Mike Keenan was a great coach. We didn't like him as players, but that's what he wanted. And then when you go to the other side, Bill Deneen, he was the opposite. You wanted to play for him. You felt if we played and we didn't win the game, we felt bad for him. Oh. Like we let him down. You brought up a good point, though, that you want to win for the guy that you like. How much can that influence the outcome of not just the game, but the season? I think it means a lot because uh, we did feel bad when we lost for him, not for us, because, you know, you want to play because he's such a good guy and, and everybody loved him on the bench and they'd do anything for him. Did it work? Yeah, it worked. Yeah, it worked. This isn't the first time a new coach has taken over a team and they've just done great things and won a lot until they don't. Next year, they're probably, I don't think he'll be coaching next year. I think he's just going to be there for the rest of this year. Then they're going to get somebody else in. He might be an advisor or something like that. Because he, he, he doesn't have the coaching experience yet, I don't think. But so, he's winning. Yeah, he's winning, but it's not, they're not going to win forever, I don't think. It'd be nice for you. But... Former pro hockey player and now a real estate agent with Affinity Group here in Lindsay and also a great rec league player. I speak from experience. He was the steadiest defenseman who ever played in front of my net in the old Opsman's Hockey League. John Bukaboom, sharing his wisdom on why Martin Saint-Louis is rocking it behind the Habs bench. If you like our show, please help others find us by rating the show on whatever platform you're using. And by sharing the link, liking our Facebook page, and just telling your friends about us. Our official sponsor since episode one is Ward's Lawyers. For all your legal needs, they have you covered. Find them at wardlegal.ca. Our theme music is written and performed by Gerald Van Halteren. The Advocate Podcast Stories from Kawartha Lakes is written, produced, and hosted by me, Denis Grignon. We're back in two weeks when the snow will be gone, right? Stay safe, stay smart, stay kind.